Now this morning's reading is from Matthew chapter 20 verses 17 to 28. That's Matthew chapter 20 verses 17 to 28. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way he took the twelve aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, asked him a favour. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you, you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. We'll keep those uh, Bibles open, your phones on uh, Matthew 20, uh, so you can make sure as we're going along, I'm not just making anything up, but we're actually hearing what God has to say to us through his Son. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open our eyes this morning to see wonderful things in your word. Amen. Uh, You'll find an outline uh, there in your little handouts. You can uh, follow that along. Well, I wonder what kind of greatness you long for. At school, at work, in the community, maybe in the world at large, what kind of flavour of greatness is it that you desire? What would you love to achieve? What would you love recognition for having done? And if there's someone else who you see and whose success or achievement or greatness that you admire and you would love to have, who might that be? Whose life would you like to take for your own? Well, we're born, I think, all of us, with a longing for greatness and it lingers through our entire lives. As toddlers, we long for greatness. We long for our parents to praise us about how wonderful we are. As teenagers, we ache for significance and we ache because we kind of feel that maybe we don't have it. As adults, we crave acknowledgement from peers, from our industry, from our universities. In middle age, we envy people who have achieved what we haven't and wish we had. And at the end of our lives, we get tinges of bitterness and regret 
that our lives haven't amounted to what we had hoped they would. See, we might not all have sort of grand aspirations of being rock stars or world champions in anything. Maybe we're simply content just to be acknowledged and respected with our own small circles. Or maybe you'd rather stay out of the spotlight altogether, but you'd be quite happy to be sort of pulling the strings and in control behind the scenes. We all long for greatness. Well, this term so far, we've been following Jesus on his way towards Jerusalem, uh, the city where he, God's king, was going to be crowned and claim his kingdom. And it's been obvious so far, as we've followed along this term, that the only way to understand and enter God's kingdom is to have a complete change of heart. A heart that, as we've seen over the past weeks, welcomes the unworthy because our heart recognises that I am unworthy and have been welcomed by God. The only way to enter Jesus' upside-down kingdom is to have a heart that forgives because I know that I've been forgiven more than I could ever imagine. A heart that's faithful to people even if they don't deserve it because I know God's been faithful to me when I know I don't deserve it. And a heart that's prepared to give up everything because we know we've been given everything, stored up in heaven for us, and we need nothing. And as we saw last week with Lockie, a heart that isn't jealous of other people getting a free ride because we know that God's given us a free ride into his kingdom. Well, today we come to sort of uh, the end of that theme wrapping up that's been running through this whole section, that Jesus' kingdom is upside down to how we think. Jesus' kingdom isn't about the things that we think make us great or worthy or deserving. Jesus wasn't on his way so he can have a, we can have a kingdom just like any other kingdom. He was on his way to Jerusalem to claim a kingdom that was very, very different. And he was on his way to claim it in a very, very different way. Have a look there at verse 17. On the way to what? Point one. See, on their way to Jerusalem, the city of the king, Jesus pulls his 12 disciples aside. He tells them exactly what's going to happen to him when they get there. Verse 18. We are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man, Jesus, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Now, uh, who's here has had some kind of position of leadership at some point? Maybe as a scout leader or a manager or a, a, a club captain or, or a teacher or a parent. You know, I think most of us had some kind of leadership at some point in our lives. One of the most frustrating things in leadership is, is when you really go out of your way to explain everything really, really clearly. You know, this is where we're going. This is what we're doing. This is what's going to happen. This is what I need you to do. It's what I need you to do. Okay, everyone, we're on the same page, right? Good. You've, all, you've got it? Yep. You've got your diagram. And then you get there and people go, what are we doing? What am I supposed to be doing? Where are we going? Oh, no one ever told me this. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? See, Jesus here gives crystal clear instructions. It's one of those moments. This is actually the third time Jesus has said, we're going to Jerusalem and this is what's going to happen. 
absolutely crystal clear. He says what's going to happen. He says when it's going to happen. He says who's going to do it. And he says why it's going to happen. He gives everything. He's going to Jerusalem to be condemned, handed over, mocked, flogged, killed. Three days later, rise again. Who's going to do it? The chief priests, the teachers, the Gentiles, the Romans. He even says how? By crucifixion. He's not going to get stoned to death. He's not going to get mobbed. He's, not going, to get, he's going to get crucified. And he says that three days later, he'll rise again. That's kind of mind-boggling just how clear this is, isn't it? It's astounding just how crystal clear Jesus is in his predictions. And it shows us that actually this is absolutely no accident. This is no failed plan, what happened to Jesus when he got to Jerusalem. He knowingly, willingly, deliberately went to Jerusalem to die. But there's something here that wasn't in these last two predictions in Matthew. Here Jesus adds a bit of information that he hasn't given us before. Here he says that not only will he be rejected, killed and rise, but he says that he will be handed over to the Gentiles. That's just a Greek word that just means the nations, the the people that aren't Jews. Now throughout the Old Testament, to be handed over to the nations, to the Gentiles, was the same as being handed over to the wrath of God. Multiple times in the Old Testament, God speaks to Israel and says, because you have sinned against me, you have turned your backs on me, I am going to hand you to the Gentiles. That is how you will feel my wrath, my righteous judgment And when you think this is Jesus who is saying he is the one who is going to face God's wrath, this is pretty amazing. God's perfect, sinless king. He calls himself the son of man. That's another Old Testament image, an Old Testament promise of God's chosen king, his chosen servant, his messenger, who perfectly pleases God and never sins. And he's about to be treated as though he'd sinned like sinful Israel. The one who the Old Testament said loves, God loves unconditionally, is about to be treated like someone who God hates. The one who the Old Testament says is under God's continual, never-ending blessing, is about to be treated as though he deserves God's curse. See, Jesus is crystal clear here. He's going to Jerusalem to be rejected and to be handed over to God's holy and righteous anger, even though he never deserved it. Now, this is totally upside down, isn't it? See, this is the upside down kingdom where this king, Jesus, doesn't destroy the wicked, but chooses to let the wicked destroy him so that he can forgive them. It's the kingdom where the one who doesn't deserve judgment takes the judgment of the people who do, so that we can go scot-free. It's the kingdom where God turns away his son 
who he should rightfully welcome, so that he can welcome the ones like us who he should rightfully turn away. See, Jesus is crystal clear. I am going to Jerusalem to take the curse of God in order that you can be blessed. Now, if you're familiar with Isaiah 53, it's really hard not to see that in the background here. God's promised servant, despised, rejected, taking our place and our punishment. Here Jesus is going to Jerusalem to pay our debt, to serve our sentence, receive our wrath and remove our sin. Listen to this. Isaiah 53, 4. Surely he, God's servant, the one who God loves and accepts, he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. See, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was cut off from the land of the living. For the sin of my people, God says, he was punished. But just as Isaiah 53 tells us, death would not defeat him. As Jesus says here, three days later I will rise. Well, that's exactly what Isaiah 53 says. Though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of light and be satisfied. See, in rising back to life, Jesus proves his sinlessness because death is forced to make a refund. Jesus proves that he is God's true son and servant, the one who is without sin, because after facing God's wrath, he receives God's blessing. He proves that he really has taken and dealt with our sin, laid it in the grave, because he rises again when the job is done. Jesus is crystal clear. He is God's servant on his way to Jerusalem to die in our place to bring forgiveness for many. Uh, but obviously the disciples really don't get it here. What are we asking for? Verse 20. See, the mother of James and John, two of Jesus' disciples, uh, they're, they're, James and John, they're on the inner ring of Jesus' disciples, so they're kind of right in there, they hang with Jesus. Even uh, often when uh, Jesus sort of takes just a few of the twelve, he takes James and John with them. And uh, we, we're not quite sure whether it was, you know, James and John sort of thought, They'd get their mum, you know, maybe, you know, maybe if their mum asked them, she's a sweet old dear and Jesus can't say no, or, or whether their mum was kind of, you know, the first helicopter parent, just sort of buzzing in uh, to Jesus. Uh, but either way, she can sense there's something big about to happen. This king is about to enter Jerusalem. And she comes to Jesus thinking, actually, he's going to be crowned king 
and I don't want my sons to miss out. Kind of living vicariously through her sons. She comes to Jesus and says, I've got a favour. You know, can, when you come into your kingdom, when you claim your kingdom, when you drive out the Romans, can you make James and John second and third in charge? You know, can they kind of sit on either side of you and be your right and left-hand men? Have a look at verse 21. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. But look at Jesus' response. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. And that's where we see it's, you know, it's all three. She hasn't just gone and done this on her own. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink, Jesus asked. We can, they answered. I don't know if you've uh, come across uh, any sort of imagery in the Old Testament of a cup, but actually in the Old Testament there are two different cups that are symbolic. Uh, The first is the cup of God's salvation. So sometimes in the Psalms we come across God has saved his people, he's put them in a safe place, he's prepared a table for them, and the cup of blessing and salvation overflows. Sounds like a pretty good cup. There's also a second cup. It's a cup full of wrath. It kind of symbolises if God took all his righteous anger at all the evil that we have done and he kind of condensed it down into a drink and he put it in that cup, all the filth and the horror. Well, the disciples obviously got their cups wrong. Maybe they thought Jesus was offering a cup of salvation, a cup of blessing, maybe the cup of, of uh, Penfold's Grange or whatever the Jerusalem first century equivalent was. When they're chilling in the palace and kicking back, they thought it was going to be good times. They'd have people waiting on them, you know, sort of feeding them grapes and fanning their faces. But they got their cups mixed up. I was just, I saw a little video earlier this week. I don't know if you saw it. It was a little bit disturbing, actually. Uh, but it was uh, some blokes caught a bunch of thieves stealing a whole heap of alcohol. And uh, anyone saw this this week? And uh, they, they forced them, they had a stock whip, and they, they forced these thieves to sit and drink all the alcohol they'd just stolen. And you can, it seems funny, but it's actually horrible. Uh, They are, you know, you see them desperately wanting to just stop and put the bottles down. And they're forced to just keep going, to drink up their sin, as it were. Well, that's a little bit like what this second cup symbolises in the Old Testament. God's judgment, our own sin and its consequences concentrated down. That is the cup that Jesus was going to drink. The cup of suffering, not the cup of blessing and joy. Now Jesus has taken our place. He drank every last drop of God's wrath for every one of us. He drained it to the dregs so that for those who trust in him there is none left. Here when Jesus says that they will actually drink the same cup as him, he's not saying that they will too drink God's wrath. 
He's not saying that they too will stand in place as a rescuer and a saviour for others, taking the sins of others upon themselves. He's saying that actually, just like I'm about to suffer, you too will suffer. Just like I'm about to give up my life for the kingdom, you too will give up your lives for the kingdom. There's a bit of irony here. Matthew, uh, I think really carefully actually, uh, just a few chapters later, when what Jesus is saying here comes true, when he's hanging there on a cross, crucified by the Romans, taking the sin of the world, Matthew actually makes a very clear point here about who's on Jesus' right and his left. And there's people being crucified alongside him. Clearly, James and John didn't understand what Jesus had come to do. And it's like Jesus says to uh, Mrs. Zebedee and to us, look, dear woman, I love you, but you just don't get it. I'm not here to overthrow Rome. I'm not here to set up a wonderful life on this planet. I'm not here to give you guys an opportunity to sit back and kick up your feet and relax and rest and enjoy. No, I'm on my way to be executed. On my way to face God's curse, to bring life. And even when I rise three days later, that won't be time for kicking back and relaxing. Actually, James and John, it'll be time for you guys to start suffering. Time for you to give your lives for my kingdom. See, as we've seen over the past weeks, being part of God's upside-down kingdom means still putting up with the current order of things for a time. Sin will still continue Hard work will still continue. Being mistreated will continue. Sacrificing will continue. Suffering will continue. When Jesus got to Jerusalem, the citizens of his kingdom won't suddenly become first in the sense that this world thinks of first. We must continue to be last until the time Jesus returns and turns everything upside down for the last time. Jesus says to them and to us, you want to be great? You want to rule? You want to be respected and have authority? That's not what greatness looks like in my kingdom. Point three, greatness is service and Jesus is the greatest. Now, uh, if you've ever been part of you know, a group or an organisation, whether it's sort of political or social or a, or a team or a workplace and yeah, sometimes we see those people who, you know, just obviously really hungrily grabbing for worldly greatness, don't we? Uh, the people who almost seem like they'll do whatever it takes uh, to get that promotion, to get ahead, to take leadership. And it gets ugly, doesn't it? Uh, when, you, when, you, when you hear about someone having sort of gone behind everyone's back and trying to work away in the background, trying to, trying to grab power, it's just, you feel kind of, kind of dirty about it, don't you? And here, when the disciples find out, they turn out dirty too. Verse 24. Disciples found out and, and they, were, they, were, they were angry with James and John. And Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the nations, well, they lord it over them. 
They love having authority. Their high officials exercise authority over them. But not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying, take, take a look around. Have a look. This greatness that you're after right now, this kind of sitting back, getting fanned, getting fed grapes, ordering people about, having people wait on your hand and foot, look at what that produces. You can see that everywhere in this world. Look at the rich. Look at the powerful. Look how they treat people. How does that work out? It's pretty ugly. It's not going to be like that in my kingdom, says Jesus. See, in, that, in their kingdoms, the pyramid goes like this, doesn't it? And who's at the top of the pyramid? Those in authority. Who's crushed at the bottom? Everyone else. But Jesus actually flips the pyramid upside down. See, who's at the bottom? being crushed was Jesus crushed to serve everyone else I don't know about you but I still find myself constantly like James and John and the rest of the disciples here I still find myself constantly thinking actually I'd like a bit of that greatness I still want the glory I still want to be honoured. I still want to have the power to be able to do what I want and have people sort of do things for me. That would be fantastic. And the irony is actually as Christians, sometimes we can take that worldly glory and we can take what Jesus says here about serving and we can actually stick them together. (laughs) We can actually serve people not out of genuine service and love but out of that same desire for greatness. And I can see that in myself. Uh, I, I want, if I'm honest, to be a great pastor. And if I'm really honest, I would actually like people to notice that. I'd people like people to recognise that. I'd like people to write books about me, well, maybe not. But deep down, I know in my heart, there is, in my sinful nature, I still crave that worldly greatness. Jesus said it cannot be like that amongst my people. If you really want to be great, make yourself a slave. Turn the pyramid upside down. Serve. Serve because it's needed. Don't serve because it's noticed. And look at how Jesus did that. I mean, what did disciples think about Jesus doing what he did? This here he holds up as the ultimate example of service. They thought he was crazy. Peter rebuked him. That will never happen to you. Jesus did it because he knew it was what we needed. It's easy to end up a little bit like uh, Hyacinth Bouquet, for those who remember. You know, sort of doing her good works to be seen. It's easy to to serve at church. 
in ways that we know get some kind of payoff for us. So that somehow we feel good about it because people notice. True service comes when we don't care who notices. And we do it because we love and we've been served by Jesus. And the irony is that actually we can never, we can never truly serve like this until we've actually seen the beauty of the one who truly served. See, Jesus here isn't just teaching us to serve. He's not just teaching us that service is greatness. He's teaching something far more profound. He doesn't just show us greatness. He shows us that he is the one who is truly great. For just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve. So who is the one who is truly great? The greatest of all. It's the one who gave his life as a ransom for sin. Jesus is the greatest. And you know, in our hearts, we still fight with him for that position. We still long to have that position. But it's not until we recognise that he And he alone holds that position. Not until we recognise the beauty of his greatness, that he'll transform our hearts so that we could truly be great too. He'll transform our hearts so that we can truly serve with no thought of what's in it for us, with no thought of this is how much I'll give and then I'm finished and I'll retire from service. When we fall in love with him, We will imitate him. True greatness is seen in Jesus, the suffering servant who lays down his life for many and takes it up again. And in his kingdom, his people must imitate him by serving and not seeking worldly greatness. Uh, Let's pray that God will help us to see where worldly greatness heads and to see true greatness and to be those who truly serve.